Hello, and welcome to the business behind small business, the show that reminds you that just because you own a business doesn't mean you are a business owner. In each episode, we will discuss common issues small businesses face and offer tips and advice from the perspectives of two business owners, one that is built to sell and one that is built to inherit. We are your hosts, Savannah Stone and Tiffany Kao. There's a lot of business behind small business, so let's get to it. We are back and we are going to pick up where we left off on our topic, government contracting. What are the steps for a new business, a transitioning business, and what all those initialisms mean? There's a lot to dive into and we want to make sure we get it all in, so I'll keep this short. If you are considering going into government contracting, take a listen to both episodes back to back. We've detailed all you need to know to get started. On that note, let's ourselves get started. But before we begin, please note our disclaimer. This is available in both our show notes and on our website and should be referred to before and or after this podcast. So we found a great article that outlines compliance really well, and we included this in our show notes. So what we're about to do is really give you largely an audio on the same article because it really mirrors a lot of the consultation we give to our customers in in real life. So in our last episode, uh, we focused on what you need to be clear and concise on becoming a government contractor. The books are the heart of your business success and failure and or failure. (laughs) So making sure that your books are set up correctly is very important, especially if you're in government contracting, especially, Mm -hmm. especially, especially. I don't know how many times I can say the word especially until that gets crossed. (laughs) Especially. Is that going to be the word of the day? (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Let's do it. Okay. So the DCAA is very strict about timekeeping and what's allowed and what's not allowed. So again, this all goes back to how you keep your books as well. So the first thing you want to ask yourself is, well, is everybody following the rules? Now, DCAA requires efficient time tracking for everyone in your company. Now, the reason I emphasize everyone is because you, as the business owner, you are not exempt. No, you are everyone. Common pitfall mistake and assumption of most owners of government contracting business thinking that they're exempt from time tracking their Mm -hmm. own time. No. Mm -hmm. So our personal preference is uh, QuickBooks time. Um, It's easy for supervisors and employees to use and understand while also providing the pinpoint accuracy, record keeping details and audit trail for government requirements. Now, if I remember correctly, I think QuickBooks time was actually created out of into a buying another timekeeping system, yes. right? I want to say they bought like, it was like originally T-Sheets or something. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and T-Sheets was a very popular government contracting time system. So mm-hmm. just know that QuickBooks really kind of went out of their way to purchase this company in order to provide timekeeping software. And it looks exactly the same. So don't think that just because it's QB time, it's going to be more difficult or whatever. Nothing, nothing about the interface has changed. Oh, that's good to know, because I do know that it was so popular because it was so easy to use mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and obviously popular enough to get QuickBooks or Intuit's rather um, into its um, attention. Yes. <laughs> All right. So the DCA has its own check rules to make sure your training and procedures are compliant with its information for contractors manual. So the manual itself is called information for contractors. 
So if you can, make sure you break down the relevant bits into bite-sized chunks for your employees to read, because if you get a visit from a DCA auditor, the last thing you want bringing you down is how you record your time. Mm-hmm. And I cannot emphasize enough how it is so silly that this administrative task is the one thing that kills most government contractors because everybody hates doing it. Nobody wants to listen to the rules and it creates the most chaos in the company because, mm-hmm. like I said, nobody likes doing it. So so the second rule of DCAA compliant time tracking is that every employee must complete their own timesheet each day mm-hmm. with an accurate record of their hours. I think that's the part that kills most people. <laughs> yep. Making sure that the timesheets are legible also is also another thing they look at to make sure they can't be tampered with and that they can't be tampered with. On a side note, you can actually ensure that with software like QuickBooks Time. Just go into settings, make sure you're selecting the option so that nobody can edit their own timesheets. And this will prevent your employees from adding hours they haven't completed yet. Most important of all is that the hours needs to be tracked in real time as they happen to give a true picture of labor cost. It's important to know that when you work on a DCA contract, you'll have to have your time tracking set up with all of your job codes, which I guess we can also call that your project codes for people who understand what a job is, built into your timekeeping software from the start and then be able to add new codes easily as new projects start. This is due in part to the government wanting detailed insights as to how much time is being spent per project and on each project. Although most of the responsibility for tracking time is dependent on whoever actually works that time, the manager's role is also just as pivotal. It is actually their responsibility to approve timesheets and make sure that they do so at the end of every work period. And therefore, it is also their responsibility to ensure accuracy of those timesheets fun job, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, that everybody hates it. But I think that the government is so sneaky that they give you the the one thing that could take your whole company down is the one thing you hate to do. (laughs) Such (laughs) an evil plan. I know. (laughs) Uh, So this brings us back to rules one and two. Is everyone in your company aware of your time tracking procedures? And are you making it easy enough or as easy as possible for them to keep accurate real-time records of their hours? And then last, is it easy for managers to actually view and approve this time? Now, it helps to have a system that can quickly produce detailed reports to show exactly who has submitted their time and whose time has been approved. This way, you can close any gaps in your records before the auditors get involved. Again, a great area where if you have a software that's already implemented that has all these kind of controls built in, it'll make your life a lot easier. If you get audited by DCAA, your labor costs will be based on the total number of hours your employees worked, not the number of hours they actually get paid for. Okay, I feel like we have to repeat that because (laughs) that is such a subtle, like very unsuspecting sentence, Mm -hmm. but... Again, one of those things that sounds very innocent and yet is incredibly hard to actually do properly. Yes. So let me repeat that. If you get audited by DCAA, your labor costs will be based on the total number of hours your employees worked, not the number of hours they actually get paid for. So for those of you who have salaried workers, that is very important to you because that's where the confusion usually comes. 
The calculations are done this way to reduce the risk of labor accounting fraud. And the upshot is that you need to know exactly how much overtime all of your employees are putting in and whether, I mean, whether or not they're getting paid by the hour or not. This is commonly known as, quote unquote, total time accounting. The important distinction here, which is actually laid out in the Fair Labor Standards Act, is between uh, knowing what's considered uncompensated overtime and unpaid overtime. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I think we're getting ourselves in some trouble here. All right. So the former applies to employees who get paid the same amount no matter how many hours they work. So any overtime goes into, quote unquote, uncompensated. The latter refers to overtime that should be paid to the employee because they are contracted for by the hour or day and their job falls under or rather their job falls outside of the FLSA's rules for overtime exemptions. Okay, according to Beth Damis, who is a corporate controller uh, who does a lot of DCA compliance work, she explains how this works in QuickBooks and work. And I'm quoting, you need QuickBooks to be recording the actual dollar value to the project not the allocated dollar value to the project, not a standard standard hourly rate, unless you're making an adjustment to compensate for overtime variables. This is because the employee's average hourly rate can be based on the number, or can vary rather, on the number of hours they work in a pay period due to paid and unpaid overtime. And it can get a lot more complicated for contractors who are paying their employees an overtime rate because when they do pay overtime, instead of reducing their labor pools, they're increased. They're actually increasing their labor pools. I feel like I need to like actually draw that out <laughs> for all that to yeah. make sense. Yeah, but it it, it 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 does make sense. It's it's just simply it it's actually just one big math problem at the end of the day. So if you don't track all of this correctly, uh, Beth also warns that, quote, in a DCA audit, they could either say, hey, we overpaid you and now you have to pay us money back or you undercharged us based on your overhead rate. I think both scenarios, which you don't want to be in, you either lose in one scenario or you lose in the second scenario, too. So there you go. Well, as well as overtime, your timesheets need to come include a complete record of any unworked compensation your employees receive. An example of that would be paid time off. You have to track unworked compensation such as holidays, vacation, bereavement, sick time, because just like overtime, this will affect your labor pools. The good news is with the right time tracking system, it is easy to track overtime and paid time off. But at the other end, DCAA compliance can still make for some tricky accounting. So it's always a good idea to get professional advice to make sure your payroll is DCAA compliant. Now, my day, word of the day, is going to be compliance. <laughs> be compliant. Uh, the fastest way to go out of any, to, the fastest way to go out of any business is to be out of compliance with payroll. So I think we mentioned this earlier that the singular thing that could take your company down truly is payroll, pay, time, anything that has to do with paying people. Any business that is running payroll should hire someone, even if it's a consultant or a part-time CFO, to help their bookkeeper and make sure the company is in compliance with all federal, state, and local regulations. In saying that, look within you. 
Are you managing time tracking and payroll correctly? The DCAA audit manual is very clear that the responsibility for timekeeping and payroll accounting should be separated. For all but the very smallest of companies, I mean like super micros, supervisors who are accountable for meeting contract budgets should not have the opportunity to initiate employee time charges. So what does that mean? In other words, whoever approves your timesheets should not be running your payroll. But that doesn't mean you can't connect your time tracking system to your payroll system. That can be a huge time and money saver. Whew. Have great procedures in place, be consistent, and keep transparent records. This applies all the way across the board. What DC auditors are DCAA auditors are looking for is that you have processes in place. So having written down processes can be just as crucial as having those processes work and be consistent all the time. They're used globally throughout your business by every single employee. So no matter what level you're working at, that everyone is being consistent at following that policy. You got to make sure that that's happening. It's important to record your time and it's important to have the right notes. Record it all on the correct jobs. And the most important things are processes and consistency. And so how do you assure that? Well, it, it all comes down to training. It becomes a problem for some small businesses, especially if you're having one person do everything. Damas, Damas, Damas? I think we said it on Damas. Damas. We're going to go with that. She says, a lot of my job is spent reading the regulations and then putting that into processes and methods that are generic enough to apply across the board and painless enough that all employees will actually follow them. Agreed. Agreed, agreed, agreed. Oh, I cannot agree with that more. Hallelujah. I don't, I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> well, it's not enough to just write them down, but you actually need to follow it. And so those people need to follow it, which means you need to train them on how to actually follow these things. Yes. Agreed. Uh, so what do you do next? Next, you need to make sure that your records are accurate. The penalties for labor mischarging range from a fine to five years in prison. Not to mention the fact that you're also likely to lose your hard-won government contract. And I believe they also ban you from ever having, like, being involved yes. in government contracting again. Like, you literally cannot get involved, touch it with a 10-foot pole. Like, yeah. they are not happy. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, you don't mess around with the government's money. Uh, the responsibility here goes right down to whoever has actually filled out or approved a timesheet. So if an employee knowingly provides false information or approves a timesheet knowing it isn't correct, they could be liable to prosecution under Section 1001, Title 18 of the United States Code. Do I have that memorized? No, I don't. But <laughs> it is important that you do. The company of if, uh, sorry, if senior managers are aware that any invoices have been submitted with incorrect fees, you can be prosecuted for that. From an accountant's perspective, middle managers are absolutely crucial here because they're the ones closest to the issue and they're the best place to correct any mistake. So how do you do that? You have to ask yourself, do you have a good audit trail? If you have a perfect record of the hours your employees have worked on each project and you know whether their time has been approved or not and who has approved it, you still need to be able to track changes that have been made to employees' timesheets 
who made them, and why. Well, the reason being, why, why, the reason being, this can be the most complex area of DCAA compliance when it comes to time tracking. So yeah, they do try and make it as difficult as they can possibly make it with the most simplest thing available to them. So to be DCAA compliant, managers can't complete other employees' timesheets, but they can correct errors on them. Be aware, however, that if they do and you get a DCAA audit, the agency is going to want to know the full context of when and why those changes were made. So make sure you write that stuff down. You also need to demonstrate that you have told the employee why their timesheet was edited so they can contest the changes if they want to. Yes, this can mean a lot of extra paperwork, which is another reason to consider a time tracking system. Uh, but it's very important to a DCAA audit. So extra paperwork, less time in jail. So last, but certainly not least, are you ready for a DCAA audit? It doesn't matter whether you've just won a government contract, were recently audited, or whether you won the contract a long time ago. You always need to be prepared for a DCAA audit. This is when the inspectors show up at your job site or office one day with a long checklist and lots of questions. DCAA audits are called floor checks, quote unquote, and they may also involve email or phone interviews with your employees to determine how well they know your time tracking procedures and whether those procedures are being followed. As ever with DCAA compliance, it pays to know the details. So what are the most important rules? To me, the most uh, utmost important is to not commingle your transactions like not even a little. You don't want to leave blurred lines between what is personal and what is considered a business expense. Now, if you have partners or shareholders, you will likely have to record your loan to share, <clears throat> excuse me, to shareholder. Rule of thumb, regardless of federal contracting or not, no personal, no personal. Take the money out. It will be a distribution to them, period, period, point blank, period. <laughs> if, there is if there is something that is tax deductible on their end, they can claim it on their own personal taxes. As far as a loan, the same thing goes. They are charged interest on the loan and are expected to be repaid. Again, if something is purchased for the company, you'll need to look at that specifically. But no one should be taking out a personal loan for a company purchase. All right, so you're hard at work, you're plowing through the day, eventually you get hungry. The food you buy will need to be recorded appropriately. Well, what does the contract say? Is there a per diem rate? This is usually specified, but what can be spent on food, travel, or whatever, and usually receipts aren't required. If this is not for a contract, meaning you're not feeding yourself or your people while working on a government contract, then the meal must include a receipt. Also, these meals require that business be discussed. So I usually require them to state a topic like financials, hiring, et cetera, and write that on the back. Speaking of receipts, you need to draw a hard line with your team about giving you or your bookkeeper receipts. This includes receipts for fuel as well. As for software, I need a little more info. Is there a recurring expense or purchasing a suite? Do they purchase for clients and clients pay a monthly charge? You need to keep track of these details and make it very clear your team does as well. If number one most important thing at the tippy top of the list, no commingling, then 
like right below it, like super right below it, like just, just a smidgen <laughs> below it is payroll. Huh. So number one, no commingling. Number 1.5, freaking right one, 1.25 1. payroll. Remember, the government has given you money. I don't know how much louder I need to make this, but the government has given you money to do something for them. If you could see my hands flailing right now, I get very passionate <laughs> about this. The government has given you money to do something for them. You need to be very clear and concise on how you are spending the government's money and how that spent money is going to give the government what you and the government have agreed you will do with said money. And then just to be like, just to emphasize that point for any of our listeners who are kind of like, oh, payroll, you press a button, how hard it is. It's not really just the mm -mm. functionality of just running payroll. Really, it's everything that leads up to it and everything that happens after. So everything that leads up to the moment you press yes. that button. And um, that button is important too, because once you press it, like that, that period you just pressed it for is completely memorialized. Like there is no reviving yeah. of the dead there like don't don't try to go back and change things right um and then everything yes. after that payroll which savannah you're just about to get into yes yes in this case payroll is a noun not a verb or an action verb it is a noun payroll in saying that you have to keep a super clean record of labor and distribution which occurs right after you press that button for payroll yep be clear on your rate structure and your fringe expenses the biggest mistake I see GovCons make is thinking that when they are rewarded a five, 10, 20, or whatever million dollar contract, that that money has now made them overnight millionaires. No, no, it's not your money. Whatever's left over is your money. But if you can't prove what you've paid people and that those payments to your people are all legitimate, justifiable, and appropriate, you'll be expected to recoup the government. And let me tell you, I lived in Detroit in the 90s when gang violence was at an all-time high, and I was and still am less frightened of walking those streets at night alone than I am of the United States government and the IRS. <laughs> if at any time you feel like you're unsure of how to keep appropriate records, you will save yourself the heartache and lots of money by hiring a bookkeeper, an accountant, and a CPA that are very knowledgeable with government contract rules and regulations. I will get off my soapbox. <laughs> okay, so a tiny little soapbox on my end, tiny little one is, yeah. yeah. Well, I know that our episode, like this one and the last one, have been pretty heavy on really like what sounds like accounting, administrative like points and how tos and whys and all this stuff. And the reason. I would like to say that like why we're hitting this nail on the head over and over again in, the, in these episodes is mm -hmm. because there's so much information out there because, you know, it's, it's a shiny object. So much information out there about yeah. business development for government contracting. You can find a lot of service out mm -hmm. there about how you're getting contract, how to get contracts, how to get that started, how to find customers and all that stuff. And it's good information. It's not that that's not important, but I do feel like there is a bit of a bias toward that kind of information versus this like very unsexy, <laughs> necessary yeah, yeah, information yeah. that we're providing here. And I think mm -hmm. it's so key that as somebody who wants to go into government contracting or somebody who's already in it, that we emphasize the importance of what we're saying here. And like we said, like literally this yeah. is the information, this is the advice we give 
I mean, pay device, literally, to our paying customers mm -hmm. to understand this, where we're trying to educate and also help train them understand like what's expected so they know why we have to do what we need to do in order to get them ready, right? But you know, this stuff, like I said, completely unsexy, but so necessary. And it is the yeah. under, I feel like it's like the underpinnings of government contracting that nobody really wants to talk about because I mean, it's kind yeah. of boring to be quite honest, even though it is important. <laughs> and then yes. the other thing is you see so many government contracting owner or owners, if they're partners or whatnot, basically kind of like sail past the stuff and what they do is they basically mm -hmm. abdicate their responsibilities by letting their managers handle it letting their bookkeepers handle it letting their accountants handle it yeah. like things like that where they feel like oh this is you know i have more important things to do i need to go get the next contract i need to do proposals which are all important but i just think that they don't mm -hmm. they don't quite give the weight of importance to this this you know deemed administrative and back office stuff equal importance and unfortunately if you're going to government contracting and you're not doing just commercial work in a government contracting world, this is definitely of equal importance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that the both of us have come across enough cautionary or we've seen, I guess, bad things happen to good clients uh, and they've become cautionary tales. And oftentimes I can at least speak for myself that myself, we've been brought in too late Oh yeah. Um, or, yeah. you know, or, or I had, I would have a client that would not heed my advice. And then later I hear that something terrible has happened to them or to their company. And it really, it really breaks my heart because like you, you knew that you didn't, you couldn't do this. Like for example, uh, one, uh, one example I can give uh, without tr trying to not give enough uh, information that you <laughs> are you changing the names and uh, activity to protect uh, uh, all of the things of the uh well unfortunately guilty now yes good people yeah i mean there it was a it was a partnership it was a partnership govcon that uh one partner was um doubling the amount that they were giving the uh cost rather doubling the cost that they were giving to the government not telling their partner that that's what they were doing and skimming off the top, uh, telling the government it costs $200 uh, per hour, let's say, or per product, whatever it was. And it was actually a hundred. So they were, they were making the difference. I mean, essentially fraud. And um, yeah, the government doesn't know, like you making a profit margin over them that they do not know about. <laughs> no, no. And you know, it wasn't even that much. It was, it was, Definitely less than fifty thousand dollars of profit between the between the two of them. Crazy thing is, is that one knew the other one didn't, but it didn't matter because, you know, they're both in jail for a very long time. So um, and and lost their business and have to pay a fine and you know it affected their families, it affected their lifestyles, it affected their everything, and it just it makes me sad that something so um, easily avoidable it has created a, a criminal history now on their a crimi criminal historic criminal history smudge on their reputation yeah that is that is sad actually i mean that's the thing too and sorry go ahead there there's there's oh sorry you know you go ahead but like i was gonna say like they're not uh unicorns there's so many so so many there that's why we have federal prisons <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that's the pattern that we see over and over again. Um, I mean, I don't know how many 
How many clients you've seen over your lifetime, Savannah? I mean, I've definitely seen double digits at least um, in the short, like mm-hmm. you know, in a short eight-year period. I had my first company, but the 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 common theme and the pattern that we even seen in our little sample size, right? Because you know there are tens mm-hmm. of thousands of government contractors. There is that the the owners are so good at what they do. They're so eager to mm-hmm. provide the service or the product. And it's not that they're not technically sound. Their downfall always comes with this administrative stuff in the back end. You know, the stuff that they yeah. don't want to do, they don't want to handle. They think it's just administrative. It's not important. But like I, like we were saying mm-hmm. in the very beginning, like, you know, for those who are thinking about getting into government contracting or whatnot, like you, you just need to have a very realistic view that certain things that can fly in a commercial world is just not going to fly in a government contracting world. So yeah. like in a commercial world, okay, you're great at doing your sales. You're great at providing your service. You're great at making your product, getting it out there, marketing it and increasing, you know, your, your growth of your company. And maybe your back office is a mess, right? But nobody cares. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really? Nobody really cares is a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can get away with that for quite some time, right? Unless, you know, you need a loan, you need to get audited or whatever, but you can be a pretty large sizable company to do that. The point mm-hmm. I'm trying to get across is that in the government contracting world, it doesn't matter if you're a $500,000 company, $1 million company, which in a commercial world can be still deemed as somewhat small. You're held to the same mm-hmm. level of compliance as everybody else, including yeah. the big boys. And that yep. is that big leap, that big step that I think a lot of, you know, very hopeful um, entrepreneurs trying in the government contracting world, they kind of just don't realize and Oftentimes, as we had mentioned, it just becomes their downfall, which is a shame. Yep, it really is, because I have seen some really big ones uh, fall and some really small ones fall and have to uh, go. They're gone bankrupt. I mean, I've seen so many bad things. The way I usually explain it to a client is imagine you're a child and you are your parent is giving you $50 to go to the grocery store and is asking you for the change in the receipt. You're They're giving you $50 and saying, go buy me uh, milk, eggs, and butter. You buy the milk, eggs, and butter. You bring the receipt and the change home. That's what I have an expectation of my kid. Or if they're like, oh, I'm hungry, but, uh, you know, okay, hey, can I go to Burger King or whatever or Wendy's? Yeah, sure. Here's. Uh, $20, go buy whatever you want, but bring me back the receipt and the change, right? If they don't bring me back the receipt and the change, I'm kind of upset. Like, wait, what did you just spend my money on? (laughs) Like, what did you go buy? Yeah, just, just, oh, I decided to, I decided that I wasn't going to go to Wendy's. I just pocketed your 20. (laughs) What? I didn't give you money just to give you money. I gave you money to give buy, go buy yourself. What? To me, it's the same thing as when you are a government contractor. The government is saying, okay, you said this is going to cost this much. Then this is how much money we're going to give you. Give us, Show us the receipts of what you spent, how you spent it, and why you spent it the way you did. And, uh, you know, that, that way you are record, you're record keeping. And you're right. It is totally different than uh, the, the, regular business sector, if you will. Yeah. The commercial world, because nobody has those kinds of expectations on you because you're not spending taxpayer money. (laughs) Yeah. It's so that's what you're doing is you are spending, uh, the whole of the United States, uh, citizens money. Mm. So don't take it lightly. Oh my goodness. So in each episode, we like to connect a famous example to our discussion to help you relate our talking points on a more global 
or well-recognized scale. Sometimes we use exact examples of either famous persons or successful business owners of today or in history. And sometimes we use examples of people who inspire us and have inspired today's discussion. Okay, so I have an example of what not to do, similar to what you were talking about earlier, Savannah. It's a, like the truth of it is that if you do get indicted or charged guilty for a large sum, you get a nice press release on the Department of Justice's website. So that's exactly oh, yeah. where this is from. The headline states, government contractor sentenced to 57 months in prison for $3.7 million procurement fraud scheme. So, dang. The name of the contractor, uh, Chester L. Neal Jr. of uh, Bourbon Oak, Missouri, was sentenced by the U.S. District Dr- Judge and also pay, uh, also ordered to pay restitution in an amount of $3,734,927.50. He pleaded guilty on August 19, 2019, so kind of fairly recent, I suppose, to one, one count of mail fraud. And according to... What happened was, I mean, the short version is, we'll link the actual article in the show notes, but the short version Mm -hmm. is this. Neil had a contract and the contract was to purchase and transport rock, gravel, and other raw materials to military bases and national parks. After winning this, Neil fraudulently induced um, subcontractors to perform the required work. Now, the fraudulent part is this, is because when Neil was paid by the government for his subcontractor's work, he did not pay the subcontractors. Instead, he kept the money oh and God. spent it in places like casinos, nightclubs, restaurants, and hotels. In total, between July 2008 and December 2017. Now, this, again, goes back to what we were saying is, oh, there's no time limit. <laughs> they don't care how long ago this happened. Mm-hmm. They will come find you if they realize nope. it happened. They determined that he yep. defrauded his subcontractors out of approximately $3.7 million, which is where they got the restitution amount. Now, the departments, I guess you can say, involved in figuring all this out included the House of the Department of Interior Office of Inspector Generals, Western Region Office of Investigations. This is why they have an acronym called DOI-OIG, because my gosh, that is a mouthful. But just think about this. It's that department plus the Army's uh, CID, which is the Criminal Investigation Command, the FBI, mm-hmm. and the Air Force OSI, which is their Office of Special Investigations, and then DCIS, which is the Defense Criminal Investigative Services came together and investigated this matter. So there you go. Dang. A cautionary tale of what not to do. Yeah. Well, I thought I would use famous cautionary tales during this segment because I can't emphasize enough how important it is to follow the doggone rules. These may be huge examples with lots of money tied to it, but what they did is not uncommon, even to the micro GCs. Same rule applies to everybody. We've listed the link in the show notes if you'd like to read the rest of these terrible, so terrible, and unfortunate stories. Uh, Federal contractors are required to bill the government at standard rates, as we have said before, and if they fail to do so, they may be in violation of the False Claims Act. Maersk Line Limited paid $31.9 million in 2012 to settle billing allegations of that nature. The company was responsible for shipping perishable cargo to troops in Afghanistan and Iraq. Reportedly, Maersk Line 
systemically, good heavens, systemically billed the government for far more than it was owed and requested excessive late fees, fees when the delays were in fact the fault of Maersk. The Ketam relator in this case received a $3.6 million award for reporting the alleged wrongdoing. Now Raytheon, Raytheon is a defense giant with significant contributions to national technology systems. The company is currently facing a $1 billion, $1 billion lawsuit with a B. (laughs) Yes, for allegedly overbilling for a weather sensor production project. The production process encountered significant delays and the company may have improperly calculated costs. Raytheon attempted to halt the lawsuit because the whistleblower's claims referred to a generalized pattern of alleged fraud rather than the specific instances of it. However, a California court sided with the whistleblower and allowed the legal proceedings to continue. The lawsuit's not yet resolved, but that has been allowed, but it has been allowed to proceed as an important victory for Ketam relators who present evidence about fraud schemes. Many companies require employees to sign confidentiality agreements during the onboarding process. It is not legal, however, for companies with federal contracts to include language in these agreements that could suppress whistleblower reports. The SEC demonstrated its commitment to upholding whistleblower protections in April 2015 when it sued KBR for allegedly requiring employees to sign unlawful confidentiality agreements. The agreements required KBR employees to first inform the company before reporting wrongdoing to federal agencies. As many whistleblowers have experienced, internal reporting isn't always safe or reliable. KBR paid a $130,000 penalty to settle those charges. Ouch. Ouch indeed. With each episode, we like to share either books, tools, apps, platforms, or anything we think is a great next step and connector to our discussion. So if you like our subject matter and want to learn more, you'll have a great place to start. So I got two general kind of suggestions or things to look at um, on YouTube, because I like the visual uh, at times, is that on YouTube, there's a YouTube channel um, under um, Jennifer Schultz and Associates, which is kind of a locally based mm. DC firm that specializes in government contracting. And they have a wealth of information on their channels, just about all things government contracting and all about compliance, because, you know, eh, they are lawyers after all. So <laughs> it, it, it's yeah. good. I, I actually really do appreciate the amount of information that they put out there. And like I said, it is about compliance. So it's not it's not the most exciting thing in the world, but the fact that somebody's willing to take their time and disseminate this information for you, go through every parts of the FAR for you and, you know, put it in the audio visual way. I really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. So we'll definitely link that down in the show notes. The other thing is, you know, getting resources off uh, PTAC. So that, that stands for the procurement uh, technical assistance centers. Now, most department, most agencies all have their own PTACs. And the whole point is the fact that they're really there to help, businesses into government contracting. So this will give you, you know, the rules, you know, stuff in black and white or whatnot. So at least you're kind of aware of what's going on. But then, of course, outside of that is, you know, you look to kind of local resources. There's a myriad of consultants 
that are out there to really help assist government mm -hmm. contractors or people who want to get into government contracting or government contractors do business development and marketing and all that fun stuff. And of course, there are all there are definitely resources of like um, CFOs, um, accounting firms, uh, bookkeepers that, you know, you, that can also mm -hmm. assist you with this. So it's kind of not only knowing information. So I think my I think my theme song as a business owner is you need to know enough to be dangerous about everything yep. to be able to put together the right support group for yourself to be able to help your business not just thrive, but be sustainable. And um, so that's what I, I would say. Luckily, it, this is such a popular field that there's a lot of those kind of kind of those resources out there. So I would say, you know, pick and choose yours carefully. Make sure um, make sure they're the right support for you, but definitely don't you know, don't overlook the small stuff because I feel like in government contracting, what most of us would deem as kind of small stuff isn't small for them. So you need to know your rules and you need to know what's important. Agreed. And in my research, I found an awesome link that has a ton of book recommendations for all aspects of government contracting. As opposed to listing them all out here, we're going to add those, uh, sorry, we're going to add the link to the show notes. There are suggestions for how to get into GovCon, how to do cost-based pricing, quality assurance, the laws, and how to negotiate deals, among many other suggestions. I personally was blown away by the suggestions, so please take a moment to click the link and find the book that's right for you. Please join us for our next episode, where we will discuss quality control for client and quality control for employees. This will also be a two-part series. Please show us your support by following us on your preferred podcast platform, social media, and YouTube. We'd love for you to also share our episodes. All of our links are posted below. And until next time, mind your business behind your small business.